From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. I'm David Bolander, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Beyond the Skyline is sponsored by Ironmark Building Company. Whether it's a new luxury apartment building in the North Loop or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this episode, Peter McLaughlin, Executive Director of Twin Cities LISC, talks to FNC reporter Brian Johnson. McLaughlin discusses the mission of LISC, its work with developers of color, and other topics. Peter, it's good to see you again. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Sunshine, and that always helps me, you know, when the sun's shining. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I wanted to check in with you um, to talk a little bit about Twin Cities LISC, uh, Local Initiative Support Corporation, and all the good work you've been doing. I understand that um, you recently had a, I believe it's a 35th anniversary celebration. Tell we us did. about that. So uh, 35 years ago in 1988, and just a reminder, George Bush George W. Bush, H.W. Bush was president back then. <laughs> George Latimer was the mayor in St. Paul, and he was actually one of the people who was instrumental in bringing Lisk to the Twin Cities. And uh, just to show you, there was uh, Hill Street Blues, Dallas, Dynasty, and MASH were the big TV shows. So, so it was a <laughs> while ago, okay, 35 years. So, yeah, I remember those shows. That's as I'm getting old, too, right? <laughs> So uh, yeah, we've done. We've had. We've been in place for 35 years. LISC was created because the Community Reinvestment Act was passed, and that required banks that were taking deposits from lower income areas to actually make loans in those lower income areas. And so it was a way to move capital. That that law was a way to move capital into these districts. Uh, and so. With the help of the Ford Foundation, the work with the banks, uh, this new organization, the Local Initiative Support Corporation, was created to help to actually place those loans, to originate the loans, put them in place. Uh, and so that's why it was created 35 years ago. We continue to do that work. A lot of our, we collect money. We have 38 offices around the country, but we've got then nationally, a lot of the money is collected. They do. They have. They've done a couple uh, big bond issues on Wall Street, as well as getting uh, investments from the large banks and other large institutions. We have to raise our own money here locally to run our offices and and to provide additional resources. But there are 38 offices around the country, including Twin Cities, which is the office I run, and then the Duluth Duluth office, which has been around for about 25 years. Uh, and so we're. We're following that model. The national raises the money centrally. They do HR. They do the legal work centrally. But we're the local originators of deals working to identify good projects that uh, we can move capital into. And I, I kind of like to describe LISC as uh, an organization that 
provides capital to people, places, and projects that don't get adequate access to capital through the usual means. And that's what we do. We gather that capital and then we put it out there for affordable housing projects, small business development, the like. Right, right on. And just reading from your website here, um, it says, since our founding in 1988, we've invested more than $900 million of our own money and leveraged $2.9 billion in additional investments to support local community development projects. Well, Can let me just say, we, yeah. just hit a, we just hit a billion, okay, okay. <laughs> this, this year. So we're at a billion yeah. dollars worth of investments, and then it's leveraged over $3 billion worth of, uh, of outside investments as well. And again, a lot of that money is coming from outside the Twin Cities. So one of the things that having a local LISC office does is it leverages money from the whole country and brings it into into our marketplace. So talk a little bit more about the impact of that and what it means to the community and uh, projects that are getting done that may not have been doable without the support. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Uh, Back in the day, back when MASH was on TV, uh, they, we used to, we, we did a lot of work with emerging nonprofit organizations. And we did, that. we made a lot of investments in PPL, Common Bond, what's now Aon. And now those are major, major nonprofit organizations, but then they were fledglings. And so LISC was investing resources into their operations but also into the projects that they were doing and now they're big actors you know metro wide and uh and so that's one of the things we do is we invest in the capacity of community organizations to do the work and you know these days we're investing in a, a wide variety of bipoc organizations across the across the region uh and so we continue to do that there are housing projects out there that wouldn't be built but for the availability of, of grants and low-cost capital, lower-cost capital that LISC has been able to, to provide. If you, as you make the rounds throughout the city, you can see many of them. One of the groups I'm really proud of having worked with is Rondo Community Land Trust. They have, uh, they have been around for a long time. LISC was one of the earliest investors in, in the land trust in the, sometime in the early 90s, I believe it was, before my time here at LISC. And what land trusts do, as you know, is they buy land and then they uh, they keep the ownership of the underlying land, but then they sell the buildings on top of it. So it gives homeowners and and build and commercial enterprises the ability to buy their building without having to buy the land, the underlying land cost. And that's a way to make it uh, easier to get on the ownership escalator. But also, uh, it gives them the, the longer-term control about of, of affordability. And we were again an early investor. Now they're an incredibly robust organization right there in the heart of Rondo. They're making investments all over Ramsey County uh, in uh, affordable uh, home ownership for for residents. They're also making investments in commercial properties. Uh, so that small businesses, small local businesses can can actually grow and prosper. And so that's really the sweet spot, trying to get that affordability for uh, community members and for businesses in the in those communities. And and tell us a little bit, you briefly alluded to the work you've done with BIPOC 
developers. Can you expand on that a little bit? I know we've I've written about some of those projects yeah. and tell us yeah. about that. I have to say it's probably the in my little bit more than four years here at LISC, it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite activity that we're we're in. There, there's this incredible and growing group of new emerging BIPOC developers in the Twin Cities. They want to go out, they want to do projects, they want to build projects in the communities. Uh, and they, you know, we did a, a survey, we had a survey done about four years ago, talking to those developers about what was what was impeding their progress and their success. And so we listened to what they had to say and we created what we call our, our Developers of Color Initiative to try to literally change the ecosystem of development in the Twin Cities, which was very white in the, and very male uh, over the years. And so we're trying to get as a way of building wealth in BIPOC communities and building community control, we wanted to uh, invest in these new emerging developers. So they had to have site control. It wasn't kind of uh, development 101 that we were doing. We were doing development 201. We had to have a. We wanted the developers to have a project that they were working on. We provided uh, some. We had training sessions. We provided access to technical assistance, some grant money, so that they could get cash flow some of those pre-development costs that uh, that are real. You know, they don't have a big balance sheet. They don't necessarily have a huge savings account, or they can't go to the bank of mom, as Chris Coleman used to say. Uh, and and so we're trying to get them so that they have more capacity at the front end. And then we stick with them as they put together their, their final financing project, uh, packages so that we help them get over the finish line. So we want to provide training, but we also want to provide, you know, assistance being their hand, you know, arm in arm with them as they, as they succeed in doing their projects. We also are very intentional, very intentional about, uh, connecting those developers with other successful developers in the ecosystem. Uh, you know, whether it's David, you know, David Wellington, it's all, it's all sorts of folks who are there to, to confer with, with those developers, help them over the, over the humps that are, that are inevitably there. I always like to say, you know, you, you talk to the, the new developers and they think you're going from point A to point B and it's a straight line and it's anything but a straight line. You got you to, you gotta, you know, you gotta move with the with the pro with the process, and it's complicated. And they get discouraged, and sometimes they need a little bit of advice along the way, uh, you know, a phone call here or there to help help get them get them the kind of advice that they need. And so we're try we try to be there with them. And we've had twenty seven developers in our two uh, two groups. We originally thought we were our first group. We thought we were going to have six developers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, we ended up having. 43 applicants for the positions. And so we swept the floor, went out and raised a little bit more money. And uh, we ended up having 12 in uh, in our first group. And then we did uh, the second group and we had another, another uh, large, you know, over 40 applicants again. And so they've got, some of them have got projects that are done. Johnny Opara is a good example. Uh, but there are others who are close and we're, you know, sticking with them. Uh, and our hope is that we'll have another another uh, cohort sometime in in 2024. 
Well, that's great news. And you mentioned Johnny, and I've talked to him on many occasions, and I know he's done some good work. And I believe he's working with Sherman now on a big project. I think it was at the Heights. Is that? Yeah, he's working, on, he's working on the Heights. That's right. That's a yeah. big deal, really huge deal. Uh, we're actually working, we're talking to uh, Habitat's working up there, too, and we're trying to see if we can provide a little bit of financing for them for their uh, later phases in that work. So, I mean, that's a, for St. Paul, that's a huge deal, and uh, yes. we want to be as helpful as we can. Uh, yeah. A lot of exciting stuff happening. Yeah, the other stuff that I'm really proud of is the work on the recovery after the murder of George Floyd. You know, as, as you know, things, there was that, I call it a period of mourning that happened after that community-wide, and things kind of stopped. And so, ultimately, eventually, the the guy the ideas started kind of coming up and the from the community and the the notion was let a thousand flowers bloom that was going to be the answer. Uh, then some people started adding up how much it would cost to make five hundred flowers bloom, <laughs> and and so then they started they were the the that's when an organization like List could be helpful because we had access to capital that was going to be essential if you were going to do any projects, you know, in, in any large number. And so um, we created what we call the CAT Fund, which you've, uh, which you've talked about before. Uh, and with that, what we did is we, we raised $35 million from the public sector, foundations, and businesses in the form of grants, uh, uh, project-related investments at, at uh, concessionary interest rates, and then uh, list money from the national office on top of that. We created a capital stack. The first eight loans that we did out of that fund back in the days of low interest rates were, uh, it was under, they were under 3% for the, for the uh, groups that were, that were making the investments. And the idea initially was we didn't want to have a repeat of what happened in 2008 and 2009 when outside capital came in and scarfed up a lot of properties uh, and got control of those. We wanted to make sure that local local organizations and communities had resources available to acquire key properties on, on uh, roads like Lake Street or West Broadway or University Avenue. And so we created this fund. We worked with a number of community organizations. And at the same time, the Bush Foundation was very generous. They provided us with some funds that we could invest in the capacity of community organizations to actually do this work, the development work. And so a good example is uh, Redesign, formerly Seward Redesign, and the and the Coliseum building. So there it's Kitty Corner from the third precinct. Uh, the owner of the building, which had terrible damage, uh, but not structural. Uh, the owner of the building was ready to just tear it down. And then the community and redesign came in and they said, no, we'd like to buy it. And we provided financing to help them buy the property. It was a loan of over $2 million to help them buy the property. Subsequently, we've provided them with a loan of over $7 million as a bridge for historic tax credits that are going to go into the $35 million redevelopment there. That's under construction right now. We provided that loan uh, over $7 million because uh, you don't get paid on the historic tax credits till the building is completed and can be signed off on. And so 
we provided that, and now that's under construction, and it'll be the biggest uh, project uh, right on Lake Street that's been done since the the murder of George Floyd. And the community is is uh, just crying for to see progress. It's been it's it's admittedly been slow coming, but as you know, these deals are complicated. Uh, but that our cat fund, I think, has been incredibly instrumental in that work. We're doing. I was talking with uh, Abe Demage this morning uh, about some projects that he's got on on Lake Street that we're helping with. We've got some up on West Broadway and on University Avenue as well. I'm proud of that work. There's more that needs to be done. We're trying to recapitalize the fund because the 35 million is almost up the door, and so we're working right now to raise some more capital for the for construction loans and the like. Great. And so you've been with LISC now as executive director since 2019. Is that right? Four and a half, four and a half years almost. I know that that's crazy. It's just time is just I know. Surprised. I know. My my <laughs> um, daughter's a senior in high school. I can't believe that either. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, well, that's great. Uh, and then so tell us a little bit about what attracted you to that opportunity at LISC. Well, you know, when I was at at Hennepin County, one of the things that I tried to emphasize was creation of places and working on community development, not just, you know, the county had a tendency, you know, that because of the work that they did, they were dealing with individual families or individuals, but they didn't have a, a place-based orientation. And so over the years, we worked to get a place-based orientation with our community works projects along along capital investments that the county was making along like the Midtown Greenway uh, or, or along the light rail. I mean, if you go out to Hiawatha Avenue and we didn't, the county didn't have a role directly in all of them, but there's, you know, six or 800 housing units at virtually every stop in South Minneapolis. And there are more being built right now. And so this idea of building community around infrastructure <clears throat> was an idea that I was Really, I had some experience with, and so this job became available. And I said, you know, I've got a few more deals in me, so let's uh, let's try to make something happen here. And so I, I took on the job, and I and the the leadership at National List wanted to to uh, ramp up the volume of work that this list office was doing, and it seemed like a good challenge, and uh, and it felt, you know, it's the kind of work that I love to do, and so uh, so I took it on, and I'm happy I did. It almost sounds like a continuation of yes. what you were doing at the county board level. And when you Absolutely. see that nexus with, I know you're a big fan of mass transit and seeing that nexus with housing and development there along those corridors. That's yeah. um, right, up, like right fall, up your falling out of bed, you know, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I those investments and getting capital into communities that haven't had access to capital. That to me is the is the thing that's absolutely essential if you're going to live up to the rhetoric that people have about, okay, we're trying to build wealth in communities, we're trying to build BIPOC income. You know, you can talk about that till you're blue in the face. You've got to make, find out, find ways to get investments in those community and investments that actually benefit the people in those communities. And so that's what this job has been about for me. And it was great. We had our, uh, we had our 35th anniversary at Jamez Staples' place. He's the head of uh, regional energy partners, and he's creating 
our regional apprenticeship training center there. And he's been, we've worked with him over the years. And so it was great to have people come out, you know, to a facility that one of our developers of color has, was putting together. And it was great, great to be there. We had music from uh, a trio from Walker West. We've been helping them acquire property for their building over in St. Paul. And so it's been, it's a, it's closing the loop, but you've got to be intentional about it and you've got to have resources to bring to bear. And I've, uh, I've always been a believer in uh, creation of funds that are, that are available when you need them to make critical investments. And so that's what the CAD fund model was about. We've done this. We're working on a new housing fund right now too, to have the same kind of ready resources at reasonable terms and the relationships with the people out in the community who are doing the work. Those relationships are so important. Uh, I know a lot of the emerging developers and a lot of the communities are feel isolated from the from the resources. And I see us as a bridge, much as I saw myself as a county commissioner, as a bridge between the aspirations of the community and the resources that the communities need to to uh, make make lives better for people in those communities. You've had a long career in public service. How long were you on the county board? Twenty something. Twenty eight years. Twenty eight years. Twenty eight years. I was in the wow. legislature for six before that. I actually added it up. My first job out of undergraduate school was for the mayor of uh, working for the mayor of Trenton, New Jersey, and uh, started in nineteen seventy three. So it's oh. been uh, over. 50, 50 years. years now that I've oh. been doing this work. And so uh, good for you. Good for yeah. you. What are what are some of the things that stand out? Some of the things you remember most from your time on the county board? Let's say, uh, what would you say is your some of the things you're most proud of? Well, you mentioned the light rail. And, and you know, a lot of people know that I worked very hard on that. People have been talking about doing light rail in this region, you know, for years and years and years. And I was happy to be part of the the group that actually made it happen. And, you know, I know there's a lot of grumping about Southwest, but, you know, we've had great success with Iowatha, with the Central Corridor. Uh, We've got busways, several busways that have been built. And, you know, you do these big projects and you're going to run into a clinker once in a while in terms of engineering. But uh, I'm proud of that. I really, one of the things that makes me smile frankly, when I was on the county board was we had the library system in Minneapolis and I represented a district that was in Minneapolis. So we had two library systems back then, a city system and a county system. And three libraries had closed in the city of Minneapolis for lack of funding. They didn't close libraries during the Great Depression in Minneapolis, but they were then. And uh, Kit Hadley was head of the libraries in uh, in Minneapolis at the time, and she came to visit me just to give a an update. And I said to her, "This was in October." I said, "Kit, you know, because she said three have closed. You know that, but two more are going to close, Peter, within a couple of years. It's just inevitable given the way the budget is." So I said, "Kit, it's time to resurrect that idea of, of bringing the two library systems together, get those efficiencies, get the city system onto a, a broader tax base." Uh, and she said, yeah, that's a good idea, Peter. And I said, no, Kit, in January, we got to have a bill at the legislature to do it. And we did it. We pulled it off. The two systems have come together. The, there are people, people don't know, you know, whether it's a county library or city library system. They know that uh, they want to be able to go there 
to, to, to read and other things. They want to be able to take out the, the books that they want. And that system has been greatly enhanced. And one of the little side benefits of the uh, sales tax for Target Field was that we got $2 million a year for uh, youth sports facilities and $2 million a year for library hour expansion. So those Sunday library hours are, are a product of that. And that was that was kind of my brainchild to put that put that as a part of the ballpark tax and the ballpark initiative. Because you know, a lot of people didn't like the ballpark, as you know, but this was a, a broader community benefit, I thought. So those are the things I'm really proud of. And I, you know, I loved, I loved the uh, I always liked being able to kind of go out in every little nook and cranny in the community. And, you know, be there, talk to people. Sometimes they're mad, sometimes they're not. The madder they are, the more I wanted to be there, though. So, so somebody couldn't put words in my mouth. But I just, I, I got a lot of energy from that. I, I always said I didn't get my psychic reward up on the 24th floor of the government center, that it was out in the community when you saw, you know, saw the projects and things. So I always enjoyed it. And this job, as you say, is kind of a continuation of that. So I'm enjoying it. Good for you. So what's the, what's the future for LISC now? We're where are you headed and so, what's your plan? So one of the things that I like to say and my staff, I think my staff gets tired of hearing my little speech on it. But if we don't start making investments as a community at an adequate scale, my successors, your successors, politicians, successors, they're going to be having the same conversation about about racial gaps, income gaps, housing problems, 25 years from now. So somehow, somehow we've got to get these investments up to a scale that's going to actually move the needle. That's hard. It's hard to sustain the energy. We've got a good institutional network here that we can plug resources into. And frankly, the legislature did a lot this last session, but but there's, you know, we've still got to Make sure that we're not just doing a little pilot project here and a little pilot project there. They're fine, but they're experiments. And if we don't get it to scale, uh, we're gonna we're not gonna succeed. And that's what I see for the future. And that's one of the reasons I like the job of Li- at Lisk was there was the chance to bring other outside resources in at, at scale. And so that's one of the things I really want to do is build it up. I want to you know historically, if you start talking about scale or, you know, fancy financing mechanisms, all of a sudden the BIPOC developers and investors kind of drop by the wayside. Our job now is to get to scale and involve the BIPOC community members in the development, in the financing as actors, as owners, and it's frankly as beneficiaries in terms of income and wealth building in those communities. So that's what I see as the future. We're working on a housing fund, affordable housing fund, which is all the more important now, given where interest rates are. Um, we're working on recapitalizing the CAD fund, uh, which is the investment in, in recovery. We're we're working on uh well, your cat in the background is distracting me there. I just I just <laughs> I wondered what the heck that was. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so we're gonna continue though. At least the dog's not here. She, right. she tends to bark and chase the cats. So, uh, anyway. yeah, so the other thing is that we're um, we're going to continue working with the emerging developers, uh, and we're trying now to figure out how to. There's a lot of interest in arts and culture and community. How do you 
amplify the impact of arts and culture by integrating it into developments as a way of making the development better, but it's by strengthening the communities and reflecting the communities in which we're working in the in the buildings that we do. And again, it's all about, a lot of this is about one, getting projects done, but two, who does the projects is important as well. And we're trying to be very intentional about that to build the capacity in the community. So that's what I see the future being. Absolutely. Well, it's easy to go and look and point and point out all the things that are wrong in the cities and this and that and the other thing. But it's another thing to go out there and roll up your sleeves and actually do something about it. And that's what you're doing. So uh, we'll keep up the good work. Thank you. That I've always believed in that. You know, you, speeches are, you know, they're OK, but they, you know, you've got to roll up your sleeves and you're going to hit bumps in the road and you got to figure out how to either get over them, around them or through them. Uh, to get the projects built and get the get the real benefits that that don't come from just rhetoric, but they come from completed projects that people have worked on, that people own, and make the community better on a day to day basis. Great. Well, thank you for your time, Peter. It's been great chatting, and uh, let's uh, stay in touch. All right. Thanks very much. I enjoy your work all the time. I really appreciate the kind of coverage that you provide in the community. So thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.